Lord God, we acknowledge fully and completely our dependence on you for life and your word of life, God. You are the messenger. You are the author. You are the Lord who works inside us what we our ears only hear on the periphery, God. And I pray that you will move freely among us, me and us, Father, and get what you want to communicate into us, Father. Lord Jesus, we present ourselves to you as your people, bought by your blood, living for your purpose, and without hope apart from you, and yet in you, filled with a great and glorious hope. We look to you now. We pray in Jesus' name. I want to start out with uh, asking you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 3 and 4. In your pew Bible, it's page 41 and 42. And I'm going to ask you to look along because I'm not putting the whole thing up on the board. Um, And then you will get, you know, sometimes um, God speaks through the words, but sometimes you'll see something in the text that I wasn't saying to you, but God is still saying to you. So the more open you are to his word by any means, the more windows he has to speak into your life. So I would prefer it if you would follow along in this scripture with me. We're looking at a passage uh, about Moses and the burning bush. Our main theme is that God is inviting us to join in his work and his workmanship and um, that that leads us to a crisis of faith and belief. So that's what we're going to start out with Moses and then we're going to go from there. Chapter 3, Exodus. Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, to be the priest of Midian, and he, led, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Don't come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals. The place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am, this is God's personal introduction to Moses, I am God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I am concerned about their suffering. Don't ever think he's not. So I have come down to rescue them from the land, from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and spacious land, land flowing with milk and honey, the home of all those guys. And now the cry of Israelites has reached me and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So, here's the call. So, now, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And Moses said, okay. Moses said, To God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Now, the next verses and paragraphs, Moses comes through a whole series of objections and problems and what-ifs and why God should not in fact, send him to deliver Israel. 
The first one is right there, verse 13. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The Lord of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, What's his name? So that's the first objection. What's your name? God answers that. And then a little later, Moses says, What if they do not believe me? Chapter 4, verse 1. What if they don't believe me? And God gives him three or four different signs that he can do just as a testimony. The point's not the sign. The point is that God has sent him and I can do something that I could not do except for the the hand of God upon me. And so God gives him those signs and Moses still is not happy about it. So verse 10 of chapter 4, Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I have never been eloquent. I can identify with that. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. And the Lord said to him, Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, O Lord, please send someone else to do it. Now, most of us have never seen a burning bush in the wilderness. Most of us have never gotten a call and a commission from God to go save a nation out of slavery. But I do believe that in his own way, God has a call and a commission and invitation for each one of us. And usually, our first response is instead of saying, yes, praise God, he wants to use me, usually we say, Oh, Lord, what if this? What if that? What if the other thing? We have four or five, and, and we, we have a thousand reasons why God was wrong to call us, and we come down to send someone else. Now, think back to Moses a minute. Think of the preparation that God put in Moses' life. Where is God going to find another Moses? Remember, this was genocide round one in the Bible, where um, the Egyptians were killing all of the baby Israelis. And the parents wouldn't, weren't willing to let him die, and so they hid him. And they hid him until he was too big to hide, and then act of faith, they put him in the basket, and they put him in the river, act of faith. And Pharaoh's daughter just happened to bathe in that place, happened to see the basket, heard the baby crying, took the baby home, raised him as her own son, and not only so, but... They needed a nursemaid because she wasn't the natural birth mom. And so they went and called among the Israelites and they found Moses' own mom to nurse him. And you think God's going to replicate that with somebody else? Who else could... He grew up in the Pharaoh's household as a son of Pharaoh, but he had the history of his own people and heritage from his mom from the time he was a baby in arms. And how is God going to say, oh, okay, Moses, round one didn't work, but I've got another guy over here. I believe God fashions us for a calling and a purpose that is unique to us. Not just one thing. I don't mean just one task for your lifetime. But, but there are things for which you are uniquely made and prepared by God. And don't tell him to send somebody else. Yeah, it is. We're calling this a crisis of belief. Yes, it's a crisis. I mean, Moses left there because he killed somebody and would probably, I mean, he's facing his biggest fear. So yes, it's not easy. But that's why God gave all the signs. And that's why God says, I will be with you. Our first question is always, who am I? That you should. I mean, surely you want, you didn't mean me, you meant Andrew, you meant Bruce, you meant Tom. God says, I'll be with you. Okay, we're going to go on. Um, 
I want to um, I want to think a minute corporately as well as individually, um, because in a practical sense we are joined together as a house of prayer for all nations. And so the calling of God on us as a house of prayer for all nations is going to be different from the calling of God on another congregation. And God has prepared and made and formed and brought, gathered us to a calling that he has for this house that might be the same, might be different from somebody else's calling. And when another church, we've got to get over this, looking at other churches and saying, what are they doing that works? And start doing whatever God gives us to do. Just an aside, but think corporately as well. Um, in this message, uh, in the, this is drawn mostly from the Blackaby series called Experiencing God. Our whole series is drawn from that. And he gives the example of the crisis of belief corporately being, will you set your church budget by what you know you can do or by what you think God is calling you to do? Since this is what we know we can do, so we'll set the budget there. Ah, but God's calling us to do this. Now, the rubber meets the road. The crisis of belief comes, what do we set? Where do we set the budget? We do the same thing individually, you know, but, but corporately to spread it out a little wider. Okay, so we're going to review the seven realities here real quick. I hope quick. Okay, reality number one. This is the series we've been in. God is always at work all around you. That's just true. He's always working. We just got to get our eyes open to see it, to look for it. It's easy to miss because we're not used to it. God pursues a continuing love relationship with you that is real and personal. He didn't call somebody else. He called you. God invites you to become involved with him in his work, to join his team. I always say, I was always, all the way through school, I like this join his team part. I was the littlest guy in every class every year, okay? So that means you're always the last one chosen for every team. But God chose me for his team. (laughs) I like being chosen. I get to be on a winning team, too. That's unusual. (laughs) God speaks by the Holy Spirit through the Bible, prayer, circumstances and the church to reveal himself, his purposes and his ways. And that's really good to know because you don't want to be going trying to save Egypt if he didn't call you to save Egypt. Reality five, this is ours for today. God's invitation for you to work with him always leads you to a crisis of belief that requires faith and action. We'll be talking about that today. Next week, you must make major adjustments in your life to join God in his word. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a crisis. If it's just more of the same or you know, one step up, that's a minor adjustment. Sometimes God has a major adjustment for you to make, and that's why it's a crisis. You come to know God by experience as you obey him and his, he accomplishes his work through you. I want to talk just a little bit about that. When we um, want to know somebody, the best way to get to know them is to do a task with them, right? I mean, I know some of you guys. I know the, the ones of you that I know best are the ones that I've worked with on something. It could be prayer ministry. It could be worship team. It could be I've been to your house whatever. And the way we get to know somebody personally is by joining them in the work that they're doing. That's, there's plenty of conversation that happens that way. Um, and so the conversation isn't the main thing. The project isn't even the main thing. But joining the person in the work is the main thing. And God does that for us. We get to know him personally, not for Pastor Jim's walk with God, but for my walk with God as we join him in his work. 
Okay, so God invites us. Make sure I know where I am here. You know, I go on autopilot sometimes. It's not a... It's not always good, Tom. (laughs) Okay, I wanted to talk a little more about God inviting us. This is really important, that he invites us to join his team and not he join our team. About 90% of our life is spent doing our own thing, and then we ask God to bless it. Our job, our marriage, our spouse, our finances, our lunch our conversation, whatever it is. It's all about us, and we want God's blessing on it, yes. And that's okay. It's good to have his blessing on what you're doing. But God has bigger and better and more for us, and we start to step into that when we join his team, when we're going, God, I'm not here about my agenda today. I am here about your agenda, and um, so I'm a bus driver, okay? And I know that my agenda might be just getting there safely. That bus job becomes transformed when I go to God and say, "Will this? Will you, I'm available to you today. The people that get on my bus, I'm available to you to minister into their lives. Maybe just a word, maybe a prayer. They might not even know it. But the point is that I am becoming available to God, joining his team, and my agenda is no longer my paycheck or whatever else, but it's to do the work of God wherever I am. This is my bandwagon. I preach this every chance I get, that, that we are called not just to be up here, but in, during the work week, Monday through Friday, Monday through Saturday, don't forget Saturday, our life belongs to God. And it's most productive when we join his team. God sometimes wants to do God-sized work and not just human work. Um, this is one where I frankly struggle because, but, but what the world sees an awful lot of is a lot of good people doing good stuff, right? We work really hard, we do good stuff. Nothing wrong with that. But God wants to show that he's not just doing good works through good people. God has some things that are God-sized jobs that no one can do. He wants to show himself to the world. And if all they see is good people doing good stuff, there's, that's a step down from the potential that he wants to show. Because he doesn't want to just say, hey, I have lots of good people, isn't that wonderful? He wants to say, I'm a God of might and power. I can deliver a nation right. from slavery. Right. I can split the sea open. Right. I, whatever he wants to do, he can do. And right. Jesus came that was such a sensation because he was showing that God had God-sized jobs that no human could do. Right. And I believe some of us sometimes will enter into God-sized work that God wants to do that are bigger than any of us. Why does he invite us? He could do it much better without us. He could evangelize the world. He really could. All he's got, I mean, we have airplanes that fly around with banners. Think what God could do. God could send an angel to every person in the world who's not saved yet. He could scare them to death. He could give them dreams and visions. He could send them a... I mean, he can do it. Why does he care to invite us? I mean, we're so bad at it. First of all, he cares more about people than the task. Can I say that? He cares more about the relationship with you and me than about getting the job done. Otherwise, he'd go do the job. But he wants us to get the vision, to become participants and not spectators, and join with him in his work. Otherwise, he'd just do it and we could... I mean, why live as a saved person. Why not get saved and go straight to heaven? We have a purpose and a calling while we're here. And God wants, cares more about that relationship, training us in the things of God, than he does about getting the job done. So we mess up sometimes. 
that's part of the training. Um, I, this isn't exactly true, but I'll say it anyway. When my kids were little, they didn't make their bed. When they got a little bigger, I made their bed for them. When I got, they got a little bigger, I showed them how to make their bed. Like a hundred times. <laughs> <laughs> the point is not really that the bed be made. The point is that they learn to take care of themselves in their own life and their own responsibilities. God wants us to learn to do the things of God. Okay. He wants us to know him and not just his workmanship. I mean, when we, they saw the Red Sea and all that, and they go, wow, God is great, but they didn't know him yet. They just saw what he did. And I see lots of things that lots of people do that I don't know the person. But God doesn't want us to settle for that. He wants us to know him. That's good. That's good. Not just see what he can do. So God invites us to join his work so that we can know him. And he wants us to be participants and not just spectators. And again, this one's close to my heart. I believe we, in the early days of my faith, we emphasized Salvation by grace and by faith so much that we forgot there's a work component to it. Steve, the gospel of obedience, I love that. When God calls us, we're called to um, a life of obedience and participating in the work of the kingdom. We're not called just to say, thank you, Jesus. I'm okay now. And then what? Okay, so we're called to be participants in the work of God. I want to go through some biblical examples. This is um, actually the um, interactive. Just name a few times. Okay. Um, a few times in your, just your knowledge from the Bible when God stepped into a life and called somebody and there's a crisis of belief. Just several things. I'm sorry? Saul. King Saul. Okay. Gideon. Gideon. Excellent. What else? Abraham. Abraham. Okay. I'm sorry? Joseph, okay. Samson, okay. There's a lot. What God steps in and says, I want you to do this, right? Now, I made a, I got a list of 21, and I'm going to preach all of them. No. I'm gonna pre- <laughs> so I, I did have some. I've got too many, but I'm going to reference some of them, and we're going to look at some of them. But where God steps into a life, and, and there's a crisis of belief, and that's what we're going to look at. Now, Moses at the bush, we already talked about. There's a call of God on a particular person's life. Second one, I, want, I do want to look at this. Please turn to Judges chapter 6. This is Gideon. And the bad guys have invaded Israel, Midianites this time. And... God decides to intervene. Chapter 6, verse 11. In your pew Bibles, it is page 174. Chapter 6, verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. There's no call yet, right? It's just how he introduces himself. But sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about? When they said, did not the Lord our God bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. How many of us have felt abandoned by God? The Lord turned to him and said, here's the call. 
Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? And Gideon said, sure. No. Gideon said, but Lord, first words out of my mouth, but Lord, how can I save Israel? Who am I? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. And the Lord answered, as he did to Moses, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. Gideon replied, if I now have found favor in, the, in your eyes, give me a sign that it's really you talking to me. Please don't go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And Gideon goes through three or four or five different signs that he re- receives from the Lord to reassure him that this is indeed the Lord calling him. I love this because, because he's going to go out and put his life on the line. And God knows that. And so if he's a little nervous about it, God's willing to work with him. He's not saying, no, I won't go. He's saying he wants that reassurance. Is this really you? Because I'm going to put my life on the line here. And so the first thing is just he gets the offering and puts it on the staff and the, goat, uh, uh, and the Lord touches it, the angel touches it with the staff and it disappears and he disappears. The second sign is the fleece. I think you, know, you might remember the story. He puts a fleece of uh, a sheep out on a threshing floor and if, his sign is if the fleece is wet in the morning and the ground around it is dry, then I'll know it's you. And that happens. He wrings out a whole bowl full of moisture from that fleece. And, and so he says, okay, God, now I'm convinced. No, he says, um, God... <laughs> Just one more thing here. How about if this time, what if that was just a natural phenomenon, wasn't really you? I want to be really sure. And so the next day, will you please make the fleece dry and the ground around be wet? And so God says, okay, we can do that. And I want to skip down to the next chapter. Um, Gideon's army is too big. He's willing, that's enough to get him the army. And Gideon's army is too big. Why is Gideon's army too big from God's perspective? Yeah, they'll say the army won the war. And what does God want to do? A God-sized work that no army can take credit for. And so they whittle that army down and down and down until it's 300 guys going up against thousands. Okay? And so Gideon is, understandably, a little bit uneasy about this. And I want to pick up in chapter 7 and verse 9. During the night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, this is the enemy camp, because I'm going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they're saying. Afterward, you'll be encouraged to attack the camp. Isn't God gracious? You're still nervous. Now, what's he have to do about his nervousness? He has to get up in the middle of the night, go down to the enemy camp. If they wake up, they'll kill him. But he's, this is enough. He can sneak in. He's not too afraid. And he has a buddy. And they go to the camp and they listen. And so he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp. And the Midianites, Amalekites, and all the other eastern people had settled in the valley thick as locusts. And their camels could no more be counted than the sand of the seashore. And Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. And his friend replied, listen to this. This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his camp. 
into his hands. My, my. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped God right there by the tent. And he returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianites into your hands. See how his confidence has surged up to meet the calling because God is gracious enough to give him enough to go on. He's still got 300 guys against 30-some thousand. But God, he knew by this last sign, that was enough for him. He says, now, see his confidence. Get up. The Lord has given them to our hands. Okay, We're going to go on. I'm not going to read all of these, but I'm going to say something about all of these. David versus Goliath. He, he didn't have the calling to go get Goliath, except that he would, was already anointed king. So it was, and so he knew that's part of the job's description for a king. It's when the enemy shows up and is taunting you, you go kill him. So Saul's not doing it. No one else is doing it. David said, what's wrong with you guys? Who's this uncircumcised Philistine to defy the armies of the living God? Go get him. I'm not going. Well, I'll go. He just, uh, he's got such a heart for God and the purposes. But now look at the second half. This same David who's so willing to face the enemy but not face King Saul. And I want you to think about that a minute. Because King Saul, the paranoid king of Israel who David served with integrity, was trying to kill David. So why didn't David kill him? I mean, he's already the anointed king. Because the call of David, call of God on David's life was not to kill Saul. Saul is the Lord's anointed. And the crisis of belief is sometimes when God says, don't lift a hand. Are you with me? Sometimes God says, I will do this one. Don't get into this fight. This is not your fight. This is my fight. Don't lift your hand against the Lord's anointed. I had to walk this out on a very small level when I was replaced as a pastor. And I didn't think I should have been. Don't lift a hand against the Lord's anointed. And so it takes faith, takes a crisis of belief to say, I will not fight this man. You with me on it? Sometimes God calls you to go get him. Sometimes he says, no, stay. (laughs) Like we talked to our dog, stay. (laughs) Jehoshaphat's choir, um, he sends out, there's another huge army coming, and they can't beat him, and they have a prayer meeting, and God sends, send out Eric. Worship leader, you're, you're at the head of the army this time. We'll be right behind you. Right, right, right. Thanks, bro. We're, we're right behind you. And as they began to sing and praise God, the Lord set ambushes against them and took out the whole army. And they came the next day and just picked up the loot from the, the camp. Jonah. I love Jonah. I hate Jonah. Uh, <laughs> God called to Jonah and said, go preach to Nineveh. And Jonah's first words are, he didn't even stop to say no. He ran for the boat. (laughs) And the lesson from Jonah's story, in case you didn't know, is if you're going to say no to God and run away from God, don't cross a large body of water. He has storms, he has fish, it's mean stuff. You don't want to go, go for Arizona or something. <laughs> Mary, the willing mother of Jesus, you're going to have a baby and it's going to be God. Oh, okay. What will I tell my mom? What will I tell my fiancé? 
I am the Lord's servant, she said. May it be unto me as you have said. The rich young ruler versus his possessions. He came to Jesus. He had done so many things right for God, all the good stuff. But he knew one thing was still lacking. And he went to Jesus. Good place to go. Something's missing. Go to Jesus. What do I still lack? Jesus said, one thing you lack. Sell your possessions. Give to the poor. Come follow me. He got an invitation into the inner circle of Jesus. He could have been the 13th disciple. But he went away sorrowful because he had great wealth. Crisis of belief and he couldn't. Peter and Cornelius, um, what I wanted to say here, the the obstacle to overcome is your own culture. Because Peter had been raised all his life as a good Jewish boy, never ate unclean food, etc., never went to a Gentile home. And God said, go with these guys because I'm sending them. And he had to say it three times. Peter did obey. But think about Cornelius. He had this vision of the angel and, and he did not hesitate. The first thing he did is he called a, a, a soldier and a trusted servant and said, go to where this angel told us, go to this address and bring that guy back. And not only so, when Peter got to Cornelius' house, do you remember what he found? Anyone remember? There was a large gathering of people. Cornelius had called all his friends and family together. He had confidence that because he was doing what God said, that the vision was true and that Peter would, in fact, come. You know, he's, Cornelius is just going on. I mean, he could have said, come and then I'll call the friends. But no, he had the friends ready and waiting to hear what Peter had to say. That's what I call trust in God and trust in his word. So his crisis of belief was, sure, I'll do it. Philip on the Damascus Road, he didn't have to go save Israel out of Egypt. What did he have to do? Get up and go to this road. And you do that. God will show you the next step when you get there. But get up and go to the road. That's the kind of assignment I can usually handle. Usually, though, I say, well, something so silly. It's probably not the Lord. Ananias. I want to read this one. Acts chapter 9. I'm sorry, I can't read it. I'm running out of time here. Um, Ananias is the disciple you might never have heard of. Um, you've heard of a guy named Paul who was started out a persecutor of the church. And Saul is on his way to Damascus to kill all the Christians he can find there. But God delivered them and saved them and struck Saul blind on the road. And so they were having this great church prayer meeting saying, Thank you, God, you delivered us. Hallelujah. The enemy was coming, but God saved us, struck him down, blinded him. That'll teach him. And then God calls Ananias. He's kind of tired that morning in his quiet time because he was up late night at the church hallelujah meeting, right? And so he's having his quiet time. And the Lord says, Ananias. And he wakes up and God says, go pray for Saul. Oh my. This would be like asking a Jewish person to go pray for Heinrich Himmler or the head of the Gestapo or something. The guys who are coming to kill you and your family. And you have to go, and God intervened and struck him blind, and now you have to go for his, pray for his healing? But he did. Now, one other level on this. He didn't actually say, go pray for his healing. He just said, go pray for him. Okay? Now, if God calls you to go pray for someone, can you do that much? 
Can you do that much? Let God, let God, God will show you the next steps. But what I'm trying to do here is give kind of a spread of the callings because it's not all the same for everybody. Got one more here and then we're going to move a little faster. Oh, two more, I'm sorry. Philemon and Onesimus. In the book of Philemon, near the end of the Old Testament, it's just this long, it's easy to miss, but Onesimus was a runaway slave. And Paul, he got saved after he ran away. Pastor Jim preached on it a while back. And he had to go back, Onesimus had to go back as a runaway slave and face Philemon, his former slave master. Okay? And when Paul made him do that, there was, I believe, a crisis of faith. In Roman times, the penalty was death for a runaway slave. You don't mess around with it. You don't take this lightly. Onesimus did it. Naaman versus his own pride. Naaman was an enemy general, came attacking Israel, and, um, but he had leprosy. And for this guy, God had a special assignment. He's a big general, likes to do big stuff. And God had him do the smallest little thing go dip in the Jordan seven times and you'll be well. And he gets mad. He says, I thought he was going to wave the wand and you know, the power of God would come down. And God, God kind of knows our strength, but he also knows our weakness. And sometimes the call of God and the crisis of faith is to do a little thing. Yeah. Sometimes we want to do great things for God and we don't want to mess with right. the little ones. Yeah. Sometimes God's path for us is a little thing. Naaman washed, he was cleaned. Simple thing. Big men don't like to do simple things. God's invitation requires faith and action. It requires a response. When he steps in and has a calling for us, we must answer yes or no. And we have a crisis of belief. How we respond to that calling shows what we believe about God. Faith does not equal sight. If we see it, it's no longer the realm of faith. It's a different province. It's a different thing. So the calling for the people of God is to walk by faith and not by sight. So that means you have to answer that invitation before you see how it's all going to work out. And that's why it's a crisis. If we knew, there'd be no problem, right? Go to Target. I know where Target is. Uh, You know, it's not a big deal. God wants to do some God-sized jobs. I believe, in my experience, he starts us little and then we start to get in the habit of saying yes and then he kind of keeps us in training until we're, we're a little bit more able to do bigger jobs, bigger crises. Actions, not just words. I believe this passionately. We were, we were raised in a churches where we were taught that the good confession is our salvation and stuff. And yes, we're saved by faith. We're saved by grace. And I know that. But... What we do shows our faith. What we do shows our faith. Show us faith without works and it's dead. It's just not the same thing. I think of Peter um, and his denial where he said, yes, Lord, I'll follow you, you know, no matter what's coming. But what he did showed that he wasn't quite there yet. Lots of times God's call, we think we can do it and then we get right to it. And just a word of grace, isn't it cool that God didn't give up on Peter for that? And he's, I mean, he's still the head of the church. Who am I versus who God is and will he be with us in it? Red Sea, I want to stop here a minute. The first crossing from the Red Sea crossing was Israel out of Egypt. Where is the enemy when Israel was running out of Egypt? Behind them. What all did they have? 
horses, chariots, a big army, and they're screaming for your blood, and they're charging down behind you, and I see that chariot coming. I don't care if it's a path through the sea or a superhighway. I'm running. It doesn't take a lot of faith when the army's right behind you, driving you forward, and they're going to kill you if they catch you. I don't care what path God opens. I'm going to go. What about crossing the Jordan? Where's the enemy? He's in front of you, holed up in his city with 10-foot thick walls, maybe thicker, I don't know. They're waiting for you. And, and we've, we have to go get them now. It's not we're running from them. but it's, And I believe, again, that for most churches, most American believers, that we're somewhere between. Most of us have gotten saved. We're out of Egypt. But only a few have made the second crossing into the plans and purposes and inheritance that God has for us. Because he doesn't want us to, you know, we get out of Egypt and we say, thank God, and we're getting the manna, we're getting the water, we're getting enough to get by. And so we live our lives with enough to get by and never take the next step across into the inheritance that he intends for us. And about 90% of us and myself sometimes walk in this wilderness and I go, well, are you just going to die there? And the answer is maybe. It's your choice. You can. People did. People do. But the full calling, the inheritance, the purposes of God are for, before us, and it takes a crisis of faith to cross that Jordan into his. It wasn't easy when they got there. They still had big enemies and big cities and right. nasty weapons and all that stuff. They still had to go forward. It was still a battle. But they were operating, living, moving in the plans and purposes and calling, invitation of God. God intends um, not to kill us. (laughs) I just want to reassure you, he's not getting us out there so that we'll get killed as soon as we set foot across the Jordan. When we get these callings and stuff, like Moses is thinking, I'm dead for sure. You know, who was the dead one? Or almost, it was Jonah, right? He was ready to jump into the water to escape. He'd rather do suicide than obey God, you know? And he couldn't even do that. (laughs) God got him. Don't cross that water. (laughs) God intends for us to walk in the inheritance he's called us to. God intends for us to say yes to his calling. He intends to impart. He's the author of our faith. He intends when the call comes to reassure us and build us up until we can say, yes, the Lord has given them into our hands. Let's go forward in God's calling and purpose. I want to ask you today to make yourself and keep yourself available to God. I've got to do one more scripture. I want to talk about success and failure and faithfulness. This is the last one. We want to know, will it work? Will we be successful? And God's calling to us is not, frankly, to success, but to faithfulness. I believe he will make us successful when we follow in his ways. But I want to read this with you because it's not a bed of roses. So let's read it. What more shall I say? I do not have time for sure. 
to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Sounds good. Sign me up. Others were tortured. Oops and refused to be released so they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers, flogging, chained, prison, stoned, sawed in two, put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskin and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that together with us, they may be made perfect. Our calling is not to a bed of roses. Our calling is not even to a successful life that everyone else, you know, beyond the cover of Model Church magazine and Model Christian magazine. The calling is to be faithful to God. And the results are in his hand. And actually, that's a relief because that reminds us one more time. You know, I don't know if I can beat Egypt But I do know I can say yes to God when he says, go talk to Pharaoh. Let him worry about the victory or the defeat. Let him worry about the results, okay? But will you get in the habit of saying yes to God? Available to him, to his calling? Crisis of belief, bring it on! I don't want to die in the wilderness. And if that's what it takes to get me through, then take me through. If I falter once, then pick me up by your mercy, God. I don't want to die here. I want to die in your kingdom, in your land, in my inheritance.